0: Welcome to the Power of Sports podcast where the jocks meet the geeks and we all live to tell about it. My guest today is Dr. George Selick, an all-American basketball player turned Presbyterian minister turned sports psychologist. I met George about 10 years ago at a charity event hosted by our mutual friend, Combachoni Choni, for a group called All Stars Helping Kids. And that organization's name has always struck me as a great synopsis of George and so a fitting place to have first met him. Selleck grew up in Compton, California, playing sandlot basketball at the YMCA, expressing his creativity on the court in a way he could not express anywhere else. Basketball wasn't a grind back then, far removed from the professional work the game has become for so many today. Selleck and his friends had fun playing the games they loved, and through a little bit of hard work, Selleck found himself fortunate enough to be recruited to play at the next level at Stanford University. In his words, Basketball was way out of the ghetto. At Stanford, Selleck thrived. Oakland Tribune columnist Dave Newhouse, who had watched Selleck play basketball for Stanford, called him an exceptional player, one of Stanford's all-time best, and certainly at five feet eight, its greatest small man. Bill Russell, one of the NBA's all-time greats, called Selleck quote, "the biggest little man in basketball." Close quote. Salut could score, but he excelled at making plays for others, a theme that would characterize his life for decades after his days on the farm were done. When I met George in the summer of 2012, he was 78 years old, but you wouldn't guess he was a day over 50. He was fit and fun to be around, full of energy and great to talk with. By that time, he had cultivated the tendency to humbly denigrate his own intelligence in order to praise the intelligence of another. Even after becoming an All-American college basketball star, helping various organizations maximize their ability to squeeze the most out of sport, publishing a long shelf of books on subjects such as sports potential to instill life skills and the proper role of parents in their child's sports participation, Selick still considered himself a blue-collar intellectual and not very smart. And yet, the legendary UCLA coach John Wooden, who tried to recruit Selick to UCLA, once lavished the highest praise he could on Selleck, highlighting his status as a gentleman, scholar, and athlete. Quote, George Selleck is one of those rare individuals who is as good a person as he was an athlete, so it's no wonder that he has taken up sportsmanship as his cause, Well, they say you can't measure heart, but George has the biggest of anyone I know, a true all-star who has helped so many kids in his life. And here's proof. His latest book, which will be published by the end of the year and distributed by Simon & Schuster, is about his close relationship with his grandson, Kean. but not about what lessons he has to teach the young boy, but about how much the young boy has to teach George, who is now in his 80s. When George first told me about this book project called Gifts from a Grandson, I knew right away it made perfect sense. So I sat down with George recently to catch up with him about a range of sports issues from athletic identity to retired athletes, to the way we as adults should strive to communicate with young athletes today. So, George, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And it's really a pleasure and an honor to, to get to interview you for the podcast. It's really great to, to get to read your new book, Keenan and Me. And I, I want to talk about that today on the show. And I also want to go over your life in sports and what sports have meant to you, the power of sports to you. But I, I always like to start these shows by talking first about um, my guests' childhood playing sports or watching sports or however they got first involved. And I know that uh, basketball was a big part of your life growing up. But I understand you didn't actually play high school basketball until you were a junior. And even then, it was the last game of the season before you saw any game action?
1: Well, Compton was a very unique school district. It was a six-four-four plan. Six years of elementary school, four years of junior high school, and then the first two years of high school, junior and senior years, on the campus with the junior college. And mm-hmm. so our junior high school program was very competitive. And in the 10th grade, our championship football game, which I caught three touchdown passes, had 3,000 fans. Wow. And all those junior high schools became high schools eventually. I got hurt as a uh, senior in basketball. One of the opposing coaches said, if Selleck drives down the lane, I want him on the floor. Mm -hmm. And he tripped me and my knee went into the wall. And uh, that was the end of my sophomore year. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I went to high school the next year, my knee locked in practice before the first game. And that was why I uh, ended up not playing that year except for the semifinal CIF championship game. Uh, and then that was after five operations on that knee, including losing my kneecap, which was oh the first operation of that kind done in the United States after World War II that allowed a person to have mobility in their knee when they lost a kneecap. Hmm. My, my parents and your parents, Parents or grandparents would tell you if you lost your kneecap, you'd have a stiff knee for life. Uh, Christmas time, my junior year in high school, which was really my first year of high school at the combined high school junior college, I made the first string, but in the warm up before the first game, my knee locked. Ended up going up to San Francisco after seven doctors in LA told me that was the end of my career. And uh, My godfather was the head of orthopedic surgeons for the U.S. Army in World War II, learned from a Swedish doctor how to remove a patella when it got shrapnel and still give you mobility in your leg. Mm -hmm. So he performed that surgery on me, which was the first one ever done in the United States and was in a medical journal. So when I returned to high school in January, after the Christmas vacation, the coach said, you come to the gym on your free period and I'll have a ball boy come and chase the ball for you. Hmm. So I did that diligently. And we went through the league, came to the last league game. And the coach said, I want you to suit up tonight, Selleck. And I said, coach, I can't run. I've got braces on both legs. I just can't do it. (laughs) And this is when the coach tells you to suit up, you suit up. So I, I suited up the last 15 seconds of the game for league championship. He called timeout and said, go in there and stand by the scores bench, but you'll be eligible for the CIF playoffs.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So we went through the first two weeks of the CIF playoffs and the third week had us scheduled to face Alhambra high school which was 32 and O at the time. And wow. we were 25 and eight. And Alhambra had two players, Chuck Riley who went to USC and started as a freshman when freshmen were eligible
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, a player who went to UCLA who started as a freshman. So mm-hmm. they were big favorites on Mondays before that game, he said, I want you to work with the first team. And when the game started, I played the entire game. I don't remember that I ever made a shot, much less took a shot, Uh but we had some big players and some players who needed a quarterback out there. And that was my job to kind of run the show. Yes. The point guard. The last seconds of the game, I was wide open for the winning shot. The defense panicked. I threw it to a big guy underneath. He laid it in and, uh, That was the only defeat that team from Alhambra had all year. We went on to the finals the next night against Pasadena High School. They didn't need me and I sat on the bench until the last three minutes of the game. So that was my only junior year playing in high school, that one game. I played three minutes in the championship game when we were way ahead i sunk three shots and the coach comes up to me and says next year you'll be the outstanding basketball player in the state of california unbelievable (laughs) it's still unbelievable to me and uh, it happened that's that story yes
0: it was a a form of motivation it sounds like that your coach was giving you to say you have the ability and now go go do it and you did it so tell us about your senior year then george what was it like in senior year of high school
1: we had an, an outstanding team that went actually 32 and 0 interesting uh-huh. the same number and we averaged 68 points a game wow we did a zone press before it was a popular thing before UCLA or other schools used it and the only way you beat a zone press in defense is if you have a big person in the middle of the court who you can throw the ball to people didn't realize that at the time and uh we had one player who uh, had to leave school for family reasons and he was averaging 18 points a game when he had to leave and then we still went on to score 68 points a game wow so many people in those days said that was the best high school team that had ever played the game of course there's no way that they saw others but it obviously was a very good team yeah yeah
0: and you were the point guard of that team as well
1: they didn't call it point guards in those days but i was definitely the point guard Okay, and and I averaged eighteen points a game and broke the school scoring record.
0: Wow! And all this time, George, you're playing on a bum knee. You're playing on a knee that's been repaired and in a historic, first of its kind surgery. Yeah. What, were there a lot of games that you felt pain in that knee, or
1: no? I didn't feel any pain. Of course, I wasn't very heavy. I weighed one hundred and twenty-five to thirty pounds in high school, and one hundred and thirty-five when I played in college. So. There wasn't that pressure on my knee. And it's all a mystery to me. I don't have any good answers. I have never seen myself play basketball. Is Uh, that right? I ended up make I'm in the Stanford Basketball Hall of Fame and also in the Pac-12 Hall of Fame, which is called the Hall of Honor. Mm -hmm. And yet I've never seen myself play. I I don't know if I was herky-jerky. I don't know (laughs) what, what I was like out there. I probably had lost some speed because of my, surgeries and knee problems but i think i was quick and everybody who's ever talked to me about my basketball career every single person has something different to say
0: oh how interesting
1: somebody says you had the quickest release on a jump shot i've ever seen that was a professional basketball player who's in the golden state warriors hall of fame somebody else said that um your set shot was the most perfect form I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Somebody else says, I've never seen a passer. None of it makes any sense to me because I never saw any of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really funny, George. But whatever you were doing, it was obviously good enough to, to be able to play in college and play at Stanford and, and then excel at Stanford as well. And so tell, tell listeners a little bit about your experiences playing basketball at Stanford.
1: Freshmen were not eligible in my year, so I started playing varsity basketball as a sophomore. Mm-hmm. And started every game for three years at Stanford, and I, even though I was a high scorer in um, high school, I saw myself primarily as a facilitator, and uh, really very proud of my passing ability. And uh, some of my memories of my passing are more important to me than any other aspect of my playing time. But I ended up scoring fourteen points a game for three years. We had an extremely good scorer who played in the U- u.s olympics 1956 mm-hmm. and so i set about in my sophomore year to to be the passer on the team and but then he got hurt and i ended up being second scorer in the conference and
0: i know you became an all-american and you led some very successful teams there
1: yeah and i, I Played in the college all-star game in 1956 with Bill Russell, and I roomed with him for an entire week in New York. What was that like, George? It was a very interesting experience. The beds in those days, the twin beds in, in the hotel room, and we weren't smart enough to realize that his feet went all the way to the wall at the end of the bed. <laughs> uh, and in the middle of the night, when I got up to go to the restroom, I scared him when I bumped into him. Oh my. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's appropriate for your podcast yeah, story. Yeah.
2: That's
1: <laughs> yeah, but he was a very competitive guy and, and a very uh, wonderful human being to get to know. Mm-hmm. And we beat the East by 30 points. And in the huddle during that contest, he said, Now f- let's get him after we're already ahead by 30 points. So he was a very competitive guy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I guess that explains all
0: the championships with the Boston Celtics. And so you play at Stanford, you become an All American, you're playing on these All Star teams, and you have a chance, George, to play professionally. Isn't that right?
1: Yes, I was drafted by the Philadelphia Warriors, which was a prelude to the Golden State Warriors. Of course. But there were only eight teams in the uh, NBA in those days. And Mm -hmm. graduating from Stanford, it didn't seem to me like a very significant choice to go play pro basketball. Mm -hmm. And I decided I needed by that time to maybe get more serious about other aspects of life besides basketball.
0: And I know in previous conversations that we've had, George, you had mentioned that when you were at Stanford, you had some moments of soul searching, particularly I remember you talking about times in the Stanford Memorial Church, thinking about what would come after playing basketball and take us through a little bit of that thought process that you had back then. Now, Obviously, you're a standout athlete, but you had other things on your mind as well.
1: I came from a very dysfunctional family. It's a very difficult story to t- talk about, and I won't do that at this time. So I think I was struggling at college uh, basically to Two basic issues that I think every person at one time or another struggles with, I was searching for a family specifically, but more generically, I was struggling with what was the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. And even though I don't think I did much in depth thinking about those subjects, they certainly were top of the mind for me. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so you make this decision to turn down these offers to go pro. And, uh, and you end up doing a number of different things with your career. And one of the things that you've done, and I'm not going in any chronological order here, but one of the things that you've done is you've written books and helped a lot of parents think about what it's like to raise children who are athletes. And when we last met, you had told me a story about kids learning to walk. And you said that parents are usually totally supportive at that time when kids are learning how to walk, but then something happens later in parenting. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that. What changes do you think in the minds of parents?
1: One thing uh, I think with parents is that they probably do a lot of what was done with them so that the examples that are set become the foundation uh, unless they change for why they, how they raise their kids and how they provide leadership to their children. And I, I don't have any questions about the authenticity and this uh, dedication of parents but i do think that parents maybe overlook what's the best avenue of growth for their children Mm -hmm. in other words they care about their kids so much they want to create a path for their kids but the reality is the young person needs to create their own path Mm -hmm. and the parents need to be in a supportive role And why do parents do that? Maybe that's the way they were raised. Secondly, I think parents over the last period of time, both parents have been working, Mm -hmm. which may have been very different from the way it was with them. And I think out of a sense of guilt, parents overcompensate to provide more for their kids when it would be better for them to step back and let their kids figure out more things for themselves. Mm -hmm. In certain areas of life, the kids need to lead and the parents follow, whereas there are legitimate areas where the parents should lead and the kids should follow. But that needs to be a real discussion and it needs to be understood and embraced by both the children and the parents. And that requires a degree of honesty and vulnerability. And I don't think our society has yet caught on, especially even in the educational world, that there's a difference between facilitating someone's growth and development rather than directing it.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I like the term guiding. My time in Japan introduced me to this word called shido in Japanese, and it loosely translated as guiding. And I think it corresponds a little bit to what you're talking about here with facilitation. And so I'm glad you talked about the school system because my next question is about that, kind of building on this idea, what do you think has happened to this John Dewey style of child-centered education in schools and in sports? And you write in your book, you say, quote, we all learn most effectively through experimentation and practice. Why do you think there's not enough emphasis on Dewey and his ideas now, particularly in youth sports?
1: That's a really important question, and I think a lot more research needs to be done. My wife, who's an educator, has said it takes 10 years for there to be a change in education.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that suggests to me maybe that the whole idea of constantly asking ourselves, is there a better way to work with kids? Versus is there better material and better technology and all these other issues that make progress, but that we overlook the fact that the most primary importance of education is starting where the kid is and helping that kid or young person to move on from where they are to the next place. Mm
0: hmm. Thank you for that, George. It's very interesting, and and it leads me again to my next one. I feel like you're anticipating my questions here, but you've said that youth athletes need to learn how to learn, and that your own childhood teacher had introduced you to Bloom's Taxonomy, but that it took 30 years for you to pay attention to it. What are a few things that you would advise young athletes to learn?
1: What do I mean by learning how to learn is that I was raised with blue books and I was raised with the idea of regurgitating what I learned. Mm -hmm. And because I was a very diligent person and hard worker, I always got good grades. But that's not real learning. That's a, a whole different subject. Real learning has to do with moving from where I am to a better place, really, an improved Mm -hmm. place Mm -hmm. and a more enlightened place. And for the teacher who's been taught to determine you need to learn this kind of content and I'm going to test you on it is far different than the idea of helping the student to figure out what this information has to do with his or her life and how to make it work for them. Mm -hmm. And it's a big gap between those two things. And uh, I think our educational world is still wrestling with that issue, though I think there's some hope that uh, we understand or some understand that all learning is self-learning because it has to do with starting where the learner's at and moving them forward through their own motivation. Mm-hmm. So maybe you say self-learning and I've never Verbalize this before, but maybe self-learning is self-motivation. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a concept that you told me many years ago when we first met, and it stuck with me, that notion of all learning is self-learning. I definitely think there's a lot of wisdom in that, George. So you have this new book coming out, and I think, what number book will this be for you, George? You've written many, well, many books in your
1: career. Well, I'm embarrassed to say it's the ninth book, and the reason that I say that is I don't think I've ever made a nickel on any of the books I've <laughs> written. I've just kind of been thinking out loud over the years, maybe, and and put them, put wherever I was at the point in time in the book, though I think like Coach Sense, Coaching to Make a Difference, I think probably was a very good book I wrote, but I never got any attention. And then I wrote the first book on being a point guard many years ago called Court Sense. And uh, even though it was the first book written, I don't think it was very insightful. But since that time, a lot of books have been written about court sense.
0: And so this new book, George, is called Kian and Me, Gifts from My Grandson. And uh, it's going to be distributed by Simon Schuster. And I love the the cover of the book because your grandson, who's called Kian, leading you on a path and you're walking behind him. So Tell the listeners a little bit more about the book and why you decided to write it.:
1: I've been working for the last uh, decade on uh, a program called Lead to Play, mm-hmm. even though it's had many uh, different titles over the years. at first was the A games, the athlete and everyone. But basically the idea was there was leadership should not be looked at as in terms of position but something that every human being needs to develop within themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that leadership is, has been a noun. It's been the title that you have or the position you have or the status you have.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it should be a, a verb, the actions you take together with others. And so I came to the conclusion that solving problems and serving others is the first step in human development as we grow and develop towards maturity. And so Lead to Play is all about the fact that you learn to be a leader by being a leader. And that first of all, and foremost of all, you start with self-leadership. You lead yourself.
0: Well, how does that lead into you writing this book about your grandson, George?
1: The book is titled, Kean and Me, as you said, Gifts from a Grandson. Mm-hmm. So the book is not about what I have been able to do, if I've been able to do anything, and I hope I have, for Kian, but it's what he's done for me. Mm -hmm. And Kian has come into my life pretty dramatically as I have been facing not only aging, but some very serious health issues and surgeries and diagnosis and so forth and so on. And um, at a time that I was very low and very dispirited in terms of going forward through these um, years of my life. And he was born a preemie baby. And I had been the volunteer family gardener for them at his home and did that early in the morning. And when he came home from the hospital and needed 24 hour care, I volunteered to do the first two and a half hours Of care for him Mm -hmm. or holding him or watching out for him and I've seen him every day of his life for two years he turned two in January and he has enriched my life and educated me and led me and given me innumerable gifts and the book is about that experience and it's really been a fun book to write it, i'm excited about the fact that i've had a chance to share this which he will read someday as a teenager perhaps in the summer before he goes away to college actually uh, a friend of mine who wrote a, a review and uh his former NBA pro basketball player who became an educator after he stopped playing, Tom McSherry, suggested that every teenager needs to read this as they embark upon life for themselves, whether it's to go away to college or to go into the military or into the work world. Once the, the young person starts out on their own, this book would be a handy guide to the issues and challenges and some thoughts about how you can work with those.
0: Yes, I would agree uh, with Mr. Rocheri wholeheartedly, George, and and actually would go even farther, not just for teenagers, but I think everyone would benefit from reading this book. You have an enormous amount of wisdom that you've put into this book. And I think of the book as as offering a new model of leadership and parenting based on honesty and vulnerability, which are two things you've mentioned. Um, already. But let me move to this next question about the book. You said that for Keen, sports are about play and learning, but for you, it was about performance. And so I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on that distinction.
1: I think all of us at some point in our lives and in our experience are just struggling with our place in the world and how we fit in and what we bring to the party. So I think the way I was struggling with my place in the world We were the only Jewish family living in Compton when I grew up, and a very dysfunctional family with a very sad ending to my father's life.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I I was just struggling with the lot. And so sports became the avenue for me to prove myself, Mm -hmm. to get acceptance. I remember very strongly a powerful message for me. Uh, I was a pretty shy kid in many ways, but playing tackle football in the 10th grade and a very competitive league and being one of the outstanding players on the team. Everybody else went off on Friday night to social event where you learn some social skills and how to interact. And I went to the synagogue to be confirmed. And I look back on that as having all, everything was in a direction maybe different than the typical young person went. Mm -hmm. And so sports became an avenue of, trying to find acceptance and so therefore the just the joy of playing and um the the wonder of making friends on the athletic field and in sports hanging out with my friends in free time playing just for fun and enjoyment were not part of my experience Mm -hmm. and maybe it was a little bit the joy and fun was there but i didn't recognize it because i was so serious and it was all very serious stuff to me. And watching Kian, it's interesting. I, if I had more years on my life, I think I'd observe a lot more kids to see if Kian is exceptional or if this is the way all kids are. Mm-hmm. They start off really with the world as a real interesting, wonderful, playful place. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We knock it out of them or we take it away from them or we don't know how to Support it and encourage it as much as we know we want to introduce them to what quote we think are the difficulties of life. And we just don't understand that we need to step back and let them figure it out.
0: Yes, yes. I think that message comes through loud and clear in, in this book and in, in all your books. And going back to one of them you wrote in a 1995 book, which is called How to Play the Game of Your Life, you were investigating this um, theme of how sports and life relate. And you particularly asked the questions. How do you prepare for the game? How do you play the game? And how do you reflect on the game afterwards? So I, I wonder if I can ask, you know, if you looking back on your years in sports and 25 years after that book has been published, how would you answer those questions for yourself, George? How do you prepare for the game? How do you play the game? And how do you reflect on the game? When we
1: would warm up be- before the tip-off of a basketball game, I would step over to the bench and pull out from where I don't remember now where I kept it, but I used to put together little pieces of paper with reminders of things I wanted to emphasize Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of not overlooking in in the game. So I was very serious and I prepared for the game by Maybe also excluding everything else that was going on around me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) socially or even academically. And and it it was just the complete focus of my experiences. And I'm sure it contributed to to some of my success. But I think the the flip side is that it was all seriousness Mm -hmm. and the joy. I've had people talk about the word joy for years. I'm going to be 87 a month. And I never have understood the word joy until I've watched this little guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is pure joy. Yes. And ev- and everything he does is just not to, not to say that he doesn't have his moments, but you, sure. when he has his moments of protesting, you simply say, now use your voice. Mm-hmm. Tell me what's going on. Mm-hmm. We don't let him get away with protesting mm-hmm. physically and emotionally he needs to tell us what's going on so we can respond and he responds to that
0: that's interesting george too because that seriousness that you took to playing the games that you played growing up it obviously did have an impact i'm sure on your ability to be successful and yet in your career post playing basketball that you've written and you've worked on programs that have really encouraged athletes to think beyond the game and to think beyond the seriousness of the sport itself and and more to really the seriousness of life but also the now in this latest book the the playfulness of life the fun of life the joy of life as you say so you recently told me you said my context was perfectionism and so if i want to get into religion then i have to become a minister and i know you became a minister and so I wonder what you mean by that notion of perfectionism. What was it that drove you to approach basketball and then also approach religion in that way?
1: I think, again, it was an, ad, an attempt to say that I'm okay mm-hmm. and that I fit in and I belong um, by trying to be the best that I could be rather than maybe the avenue to uh, community and collaboration and friendship was much more commitment and time. Mm-hmm. Rather than skills or, or uh, achievement, I needed to spend time hanging out with the friends rather than running off and practicing or or studying. Other people found time to spend with each other and made this commitment. So I, I think that focusing on sport just made me, a f- in many ways, very shallow. And I think that's get back. Sp- the issue of uh, the bloom's taxonomy the basic issues in life were very present for me but i didn't go deeply with them Mm -hmm. and um to me there's no more important concept in our culture today for adults as well as for kids is the issue of metacognition Mm -hmm. thinking about the way i'm thinking
2: Mm -hmm. so
1: Mm -hmm. if i come up with a, a solution to a problem okay what was my thinking that caused me to come to that conclusion yes and and what is my thinking about that thinking and um so i think just the focus on perfectionism and and being good at one thing robbed me of the uh, all that could be learned by ref- what i call reflective thinking thinking about thinking to me is the most imp- important issue. A lot of the issues, I think, that are focusing in our culture right now are lack of critical thinking,
0: mm-hmm. so,
1: which is another term for thinking about thinking. And I'm not sure I'm following your question. Any no, no, this
0: is fascinating, George. I, I think it actually leads into the next theme that I wanted to talk about, which is your thoughts on basketball and sports today. I know in previous conversations, you've mentioned that you sometimes find it hard to watch basketball today on television, particularly the NBA Mentioned how much you admire watching Steph Curry play, but that you feel like his teammates don't always learn from him and his diverse skill set. So I wonder if you can collaborate on those ideas.
1: Yeah, but since we last talked about that, it's interesting. Currently, there seems to be a real focus on the other players learning from him and yes. them, what they've won four straight games, I understand. My problem with professional basketball is primarily apart from. St- Curry, because he's obviously a wonderful player, and he has f- four or five tools, whereas most of the NBA players are one to three tools at the mm-hmm. most. But the biggest issue I have with it is seems more like a scrimmage. Mm-hmm. And the reason it feels mm-hmm. like a scrimmage to me, because the, it's really the, the time clock. They don't have any time to utilize a lot more of the sp- potential of basketball in terms of being able to utilize individual skills of players and so they just run up and down the court and shoot the ball now Gonzaga was notable as an NCAA team because of their quick passing yes but but they were able to do that because they weren't dribbling and they moved the ball around and the Warriors have been doing that in the last week or so. I've always thought the speed only counts from the top of the key to the top of the key. Mm -hmm. But if you're a a modern day basketball player, you take off from the top of the key and you're going as fast as you can to the basket. It's like a a tailback with an open hole in the line. Mm -hmm. And um, all kinds of mistakes happen because of that. Whereas the ability to be under control when you're inside the key allows you to threaten the defense, to have to guard you. And it's, it makes a it's an entirely different game. So it's more about power and strength and physicality and great athletes going for the touchdown mm-hmm. than it is passing the ball around and finding the best opening. They talk all the time in the pros about not having a mid-range jumper.
0: Mm-hmm. And now the
1: College players don't have mid-range jumpers. If you're going as 90 miles an hour, you can't pull up and take a mid-range jumper. But if you, but if you use, if you're in control of yourself, you have all three of those options <laughs> to take the outside shot, to pull up or to keep going as long as you can control the defensive player. And the other thing that bothers me so much about basketball is very few referees seem to have been players. Mm-hmm. or if they were they played this kind of game we're talking about yes when I refereed and I refereed for 12 years in the, in the, the pack 12 now I never got in trouble with a coach on a judgment call mm-hmm. and judgment calls are all the big issues and of in, course in, except some of them don't seem to know some of the rules but anyway <laughs> yeah I know you that, mentioned to me that <laughs> double dribble is yeah. one of those rules that the referees
0: don't quite understand these days
1: Whenever there was a blocking or charging call or a blocking out and going over somebody's back to get a a rebound,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. whenever the coach uttered a beep or louder about that, I'd turn around and say, coach, who was the best player on that play? And every coach knew and we both knew who was the best player. So the judgment calls, I'm talking about the judgment calls, should be to reward somebody for a good play and penalize someone for a a bad play. So when a guy rushes in there to beat the guy to the spot, and he's not really playing defense, he just beat him to the spot, is he a better player on that play than the guy who drove to get there? And, of course, it would be even more so if the driver wasn't going 90 miles an hour Mm -hmm. for the lay-in. So the game to me seems to have lost some of its creativity. Yes. Anyway. What
0: do you think could be done, George? Do you have any ideas for what could be done to improve this?
1: W- I'd love to see them experiment with extending. I mean, the 30-second clock that they use in college versus the 24-second, I think it is in, yes. in professional basketball. is that's, that's some difference. I'd like to see them maybe experiment with a 40-second clock or something, uh-huh. or, or or maybe a 35-second clock. I can understand from a business standpoint that, that they want to make sure the action is action and somebody's not just fooling around, but I think they've gone too far, and, and mm-hmm. I, I think it, it makes a dramatic difference in the way players develop as well as the play,
0: mm-hmm. so,
1: but I'm not an expert at that subject at all.
0: But I think you you have the experience to be considered an expert, George, having been a player, a referee, and written so much about basketball. So I I think it's a good transition, actually, into the next question, which is about lead to play. You mentioned that the professional game and the college game shapes the way that athletes are trained today. And so I want to talk about this program, Lead to Play, I wonder if you can tell listeners why you started it, why you think it was necessary and, and how things are going with it now.
1: I think I started it because I think sports had gravitated to the point that it's only about professionalism. It's only about the super athlete or the great athlete, all, only about getting a, a college scholarship or a professional job. Mm-hmm. And I was concerned that it wasn't just for play. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't for all kids. Mm-hmm. And then I began to look at leadership, how it had also gravitated more to student council and wasn't really being exercised in a more generic and a broader sense. And I think those were some of the driving things behind me. And Lead to Play is about creating Youth leadership team, you learn teamwork through that, you learn to give and take, and you learn to be a leader by actually being a leader. Mm-hmm. And then you, the issue of service learning comes in there by developing leadership team that could be in a leadership class in a school or an after-school program or a club of some kind that would put on and has put on programs for their peers or for younger kids to get all kids involved. I developed recently, before COVID-19, a student-led PE class. And the reviews from that class were, by fourth grade teachers, the first time they saw every kid in PE being active and moving. Mm-hmm. And that was because the kids had created the activities. That's right. And there was an article I read that somebody wrote that people are just starting to realize, what, it's amazing. if. Kids will play if you let them play what they want to play. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's some sense of ownership
0: in the games. That exactly, playing. and that's
1: the great word: ownership, choice, voice, and then that gives is what gives to ownership.
0: Yes, absolutely. And so, let me return now, as we're wrapping up, George, to this question about sports in the in life and in, in the life course being that you um, have worked as a psychologist as well for many years i wonder if we can touch on a few of the themes that you uh, talked about in your recent book so first of all i'll mention you quote oscar wilde who i've always loved and you said that you quote wilde saying quote life is far too important a thing to talk about and then you went on to write that wilde's witticism was quote not advice that a psychologist finds particularly amusing or useful and so i wonder if you could talk about that a little bit first. I
1: think perhaps what I was referring to there was the fact that people need, that the, the, the conflict between telling someone what they need to hear versus them discovering it for themselves. And, and the issue of asking questions and when someone, a young person asks an adult a question, instead of jumping to that tremendous opportunity to tell the kid the great wisdom i have is saying i much prefer to hear your thoughts on that subject first and constantly trying to meet the young person where they're at Mm -hmm. which is a a marvelous way of saying they count and they're Mm -hmm. important Mm -hmm. and also it raises the question that questions can be really beautiful questions can be a damaging thing because behind every question is a statement. Of course. But if you constantly are trying to find out where the young person's coming from and building upon their understanding. I volunteered once for kids who were having difficulty in the, I think they were second graders and third graders at the time, transitioning from Spanish to English.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and had nothing to do with their intellectual ability to make that transition. It was their lack of confidence sure. that they could do it. Sure. So
0: you also quote in your book, a Cree elder from Canada's indigenous people who said, quote, children are the purpose of life. We were once young and someone cared for us and now it is our time to care. And then you write, quote, the heart of this story conveyed through the letters I've written to my old grandson, Kean is the many ways in which he has taken care of me. So uh, I wonder if you can talk about the, the message that you wanted to get across to Kean, of course, in this book, but also to your broader readership about life. That's a big question. We're wrapping up, George. we got to summarize <laughs> things a little bit.
1: <laughs> I think the point there is that if we really will think about the way we're thinking, mm-hmm. we will be able to recognize and ultimately discover Mm -hmm. that we are capable of not only helping ourselves, but helping others. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And in a world that seems to me, and you may want to cut this off, but I was having a discussion with one of my teammates from high school the other day that I hadn't talked to for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of defending his political position because he felt he wasn't being recognized for all that he was contributing. And as he was talking about this, it dawned on me that the real issue is not really between socialism on the one hand and extreme far-rightism on the other, as much as it's really an issue that at both poles of the political process, there is people who are not very well developed and understanding and especially that their values therefore have not taken development in terms of the real issues that human beings are facing in the Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. And that maybe what we ought to be talking about is our values and how to talk to each other about our values and see what values can be expanded, not only for the individual good, But also for the greater good a creative tension between the two Mm -hmm. And, and that to make it a political issue that is no longer possible perhaps because those two concepts are so ingrained in people of what they are that there's no room to really talk
0: yes i think you're absolutely right the polarization has definitely led to a lot of people seeing themselves and seeing other people as set in stone And unable to change and unable to take in new ideas. So I think you raised a very important point there, George. And so this will be my last question, but I think I want to tell you, George, that number one, I loved reading the book, Kian and Me, and I hope uh, a lot of my listeners go out and get it when it comes out this fall. And I think it really would make a great gift for really any family member during the holiday season. But I think my favorite part about the book is the section on positivity in which you argue that keeping Keen's positivity is a major key to living a good life. In fact, you write, quote, what you believe you become, close quote. So with that in mind, and considering that I always try to finish these shows with the, the question about the power of sports, what does the power of sports mean to you, George?
1: I think the power of sports means to me as an avenue for making friends, having fun, learning how to work with others, learning how to express and enjoy experiences with others. It's more about staying in the moment Mm -hmm. rather than getting outside the moment into all kinds of different other issues. I think the power of sports is to have an experience Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to share that experience and to make new friends and see that your opponents are really also your friends, your potential friends. George, I
0: have to say I'm very pleased that sports was the common denominator that brought us together when we first met way back when at the, uh, the charity event for All-Stars Helping Kids, which our good mutual good friend Combo put us in touch for. And I'm so glad that I've been able to get to interview you today, but also just know you and learn from you over all these years that we've known each other. So thank you so much again for being part of the show and and sharing your wisdom with
1: us. Thank you. You're being very kind. And uh, being the perfectionist, I probably wished I could have said some things more clearly to your listeners. But anyway, it's been enjoyable. And I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, George.
0: I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Okay? Okay. All right. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that just about wraps up our show today. I hope you enjoyed learning from our guest, Dr. George Selick. I just love his positivity and zest for life. Here is a man who's been battling two kinds of cancer, but he gets up every day, helps kids, and mentors people like me. And he really appreciates that every moment and every relationship matters. He's so positive about sports too, and the power of sports. How many times do you hear people talk about the magic of sports these days? George does that because he's lived it. He's made the magic himself on so many levels as a player, as a coach, as a referee, and as an ambassador for the power of play. So before I let you go, let me read you one short passage from his new book, Kean and Me, which is, it's a really a great book, sort of like Mitch Albom's Tuesdays with Maury meets the movie Hoosiers. The following is from a letter George wrote to Kean in November 2020. Quote, You seem to be naturally energetic and enthusiastic about practically anything and everything that interests you. This includes walking through a pile of leaves, marveling at a pine cone, delighting in seeing your mom smile, and of course, constantly trying to master new skills. Plus, any invitation to do something, let's take a walk, or would you like to play in the park, or how about reread a book, brings forth your boundless enthusiasm and energy. This is natural now, but as we age, it's harder to maintain. Close quote. But that's the thing about George, his energy and enthusiasm do not seem to have diminished as he's aged at all. In fact, he took part in and won, of course, a senior basketball tournament at age 78 in Brazil. George has more energy and enthusiasm than most people my age and much younger. And the thing about energy and enthusiasm is that it is, as George says to Kean, a truly wonderful gift to share with others. My sincere thanks to George for making it a great hour of my life and my sincere thanks to you for listening. I never forget that my listeners are what make this show possible, so please find me on my Patreon page and share your comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. You can find me there by searching for Aaron L. Miller. That's Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, L as in Larry Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great day.